Hello, readers. Today, I bring you a special episode of Books on Pod. While this podcast has provided me the opportunity to speak with a ton of interesting people about their stories, I get to call my next guest a colleague and a friend. Tyler Campbell is a husband, father, multiple sclerosis ambassador, motivational speaker, radio host, and now a published author. His new book is titled The Ball Came Out, Life from the Other Side of the Field. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Some of the earliest memories I have of reading are sports biographies, specifically the Bo Jackson biography. When he was still in his heyday as an athlete, it was... uh, I forget if the 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 biography was called Bo Knows Bo, but it was just incredible to hear about this guy who was an amazing two sports star. How he had the he had that abilities as a kid. Like there was a story that I can still pr- pretty clearly recollect where he was getting chased by some older kids or something, and he comes up to this creek bed, and he the creek bed is like ten feet across or something. And he, even as a kid, he's able to jump this creek bed and just leaves uh, all the other kids agape too. Dude, my dad said he could he could shoot a bow and arrow with his feet. Your dad could? No, Bo could. Like he could shoot a shoot a bow and arrow with his feet. Wow. Um, holding and positioning. He I think there's some people who are just given like, I don't know, God given insane athletic capability. Mm-hmm. And I think Bo's like a super it's like this it's like this nostalgia around him. Mm-hmm. It's like a, I don't know. Like Superman, but Nobody knows everything, but mm. whatever you say about him, everybody believes that it's true. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's really weird. It's mm. crazy. Well, if there's somebody out there that's impressing your dad, you know he's oh, got well, he, well, he's got he superhuman abilities. <laughs> he oh, is that right? Because Bo, Bo hunts. He's all about wilderness. He's all about that stuff. So, I mean, Bo's from Alabama, so they're <laughs> good on that. Are you a big hunter? I'm not. Okay, I am not, man. It's uh, my dad tried. But I just, I never, I think I shot a 22 when I was a kid and I, I shot it and it kicked. Yeah. Cause it wasn't like in the movies, in the cowboy movies where they shoot the guns and nothing happens, right? It kicked in the shoulder and I ran around screaming. It was a little 22. <laughs> I'll never forget my friends, Jim, and they were just like, what are you doing? And I just, that was my, I, I don't hunt. I'm with you there. I don't hunt. It was the same thing for me as a kid where it's like I felt like I suffered a shoulder injury when I fired that gun. I was like, why do I want to do this to myself? Hey, when you tell me that when my dad comes in and he's got the carcass of the deer and he's taking it to Hudson, I'm like, man, I'll go pick all the meat up. I'll go get all the stuff that you want. All uh, And, and I, that's when you hit me. Don't hit me for the hunt, but you hit me <laughs> when you need me to carry the carcass to Hudson. That's right. The fresh meat. So the book was uh, very enjoyable, Tyler. Thank you so much for the time today. What Thank was your goal with the ball came out? Yeah, it was um, it was selfishly a, a, to free me. You know, I think what I learned, like sometimes people, what I've learned is like authors sometimes have a, a target of who they're trying to reach with their books sometimes. I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I selfishly, when I started writing, um, it was freeing me up and it was therapeutic for me. And I told my wife, I said, you know, it'd be great to be an Amazon bestseller. But honestly, I feel so much better because I I have put out a lot of what has been in me for numerous years. Mm. I've done a lot of apologizing to get to this point of writing this book. I sat down with a lot of people, opened up my heart about how I felt about things in my childhood, what bothered me, what excited me, what I appreciated about friendships with other people. And so it was just a journey between the pages of a book, but also 
you know, personally that helped just free me as a man and as a father. So the goal going into it, honestly, as I started writing, I just started noticing, like, this is for me. And all the stuff that came afterward was unexpected. It was joyful. I appreciate it. But honestly, it was it was 12-year-old Tyler that I had been sheltering for so long and not letting that person be, you know, having people to face that person or inviting people to meet that person. I've been sheltering that person all my life. And now I set that person free. I think the way that you put it in the book is that uh, early on in your life, you were on the defensive, yeah. not letting anybody in, not even family or friends. Yeah. Was there any one thing that caused you to change your attitude on that? And if so, what was it? <sighs> yeah. Um, the biggest thing, cause that that's been me all the way through, even up, I'm 35 years old. I've kept that person all the way to this book. See, that's, that's shocking for me, knowing you these last yeah. couple of years, and you're just this outgoing, yeah. optimistic, you know, you're the ultimate positive person, and you, you are welcome to everybody, myself included, and so to hear you say otherwise, it's just, uh, it, it really took me by surprise, yeah. it's flabbergasted me. And it's, so, in the, in the therapy sessions too, as well, right, because I started noticing it, you're a parent, I started noticing that my wounds in life were the blood from those wounds was spilling over to my children. Mm. So I started seeing it in knowing that I wasn't giving my wife my full heart and my children weren't getting their all of dad. There was a part of dad that they would get to, but then there's another part that I wouldn't let them cross over to. And the same with my wife. Mm. And so when those things started to rise up, that's what put me in therapy. That's what got me there because I wasn't, I was like, I would go to bed at night and I just like, I'm not giving my family all of me. Hmm. That's a problem. And so really because I learned to shelter 12-year-old Tyler for so long, my coping mechanisms are immaculate. My level of avoidance to certain levels of emotions or parts of my life, I had learned to master those things and to approach life with a Coke and a smile. So I, I had over time built up a level of this person who I was supposed to be in community this person who I, um, it, it kind of added to what makes my life as a speaker and being in front of people. Um, I had learned how to just mask. I was taught that from a kid going, going out to eat with dad. Now, look, look, son, these people going to come. They're going to autograph. I know it's going to drive you crazy, but you got to smile. Or we have an interview to do, you know, whatever took place in our family before this, but we got to, we got to sit down and do this docu-series here. You, we have an interview over here over the, so I had learned to put aside emotions and still perform at a higher level. I had learned that from early on. So when it came to all of this other stuff in life to shelter and coddle, that was like second nature. It was easier for me to do that than to face it head on. So your childhood was unique for a couple of reasons. The obvious, the one that most everybody probably focuses on when they talk with you about your upbringing is the fact that your dad was Earl Campbell. So I'll let people who are interested in learning about that side of things, go find other conversations with you to <laughs> yeah. maybe listen to the uh, the show on Good Saturday deal, morning brother. on the horn. Because I wanted to ask you about the, uh, the other reason why you had a unique upbringing, and that is the fact that you and your family grew up as one of the few black families in what is an affluent, predominantly white community here in Austin, in Westlake, actually, where we are where we right are now, now recording this conversation. How did that shape you as a human? You know, it was, um, I thought 
I didn't know what life was like outside of this bubble. Mm. You know, this was a world that I was in. And as I grew older and started getting into sports and started seeing, you know, more of how my cousins are living, you know, in East Texas. And then what they say when they come to visit our household, it was it was just an odd for me. It was like identity crisis mm. as I got older, because mm-hmm. then it was about you're starting. I started to become more aware of my surroundings, started to recognize you're the only black person in the classroom. Was there an age that you can recall yeah, that? Yeah. And so it really hit. And this wasn't in the book. I was I was called the N word um, in fourth grade in uh, Miss Miss Burrow, uh, Miss Burrow's class. And I was going out for recess and I was called that. And from that moment on, that was when the world looked totally different through my eyes. Mm. And I remember coming home. I remember I used to look up the definition of the word in our Webster's Dictionary in our school. And I used to read that over and over again. Um, there was a book called Night John that I used to read about a slave who, who was learning how to read. And obviously that was a bad thing. And so all of these books, the Martin Luther Kings of the world, all that at fourth grade, that was kind of when my eyes totally opened up. And I used to just, I used to feel ugly. Mm. I used to feel um, like I just don't belong. I would tell my grandmother, Ann Campbell, John Tyler Lyons had beat Westlake High School in the 1994 state championship in the Houston Astrodome. And I remember... That at that time, that was a year before I was called this, but it that started the climax of me wanting to just get out of out of Westlake. Mm. I wanted to leave. I told my grandma I used to lay on her bed, Ann Campbell, and I would say, Grammy, I'm coming to live with you. I'm gonna be a John Tyler Lion. I'm gonna play for Cujo. We're gonna win state championships. I'm gonna do it just like my dad did. And it wasn't so much, it was just wanting to be more around people who look like me. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't stand playing sports. It was like at that point in time, then people would, you'd play ball across town, you'd go and play other schools, everybody knows who you are, and everybody has a view of who you are because you live in the suburbs. Um, More like whitewashed, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Things of that nature. So now I'm caught in this world where it's like I don't fit over here in the black community, and then I'm over here and I'm like, I don't really like being in Westlake because I've been called these words. And it just, you know, all that stuff would always hit me with a whirlwind. But again, you mask it. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends who read the book, they're like, Tyler, I never knew you felt that way. I would never say anything like that. My parents never knew it hurt me that bad, except for that conversation we had about being called that racial slur. You did talk with them. About I talked that. to my parents about that, but they I never went further than that. Mm. never follow up conversation of anything. I never brought that up. And it's not to say that the door was ever open. I think I talk about that a lot in the book. A lot of the things that I felt were literally just a young kid who's trying to find his way in the world and doesn't know how, doesn't have the time to, mm-hmm. because the world has a stigma of who I'm supposed to be. But Tyler is literally trying to figure out what world he belongs to. Cause it's not this one over here. It's not. It's not in the black community over here. Cause you grew up on the west side of Austin, so you you better, you know, you, you talk a little bit more proper, you know. Um, and then sports weren't that great for me. And then over here on the west side, I can't talk about 
me not feeling like I belong in the classroom because that's just like speaking a foreign language because we're of different culture, we're of different ethnicity. And so you throw that on there and then just being terrible at sports, I just, <laughs> it was, it was, those were very tough and trying times in my life that I just couldn't open up to people about. But you did eventually find a sport that you were pretty good at mm-hmm. in middle school. <laughs> you discovered, perhaps unsurprisingly to people who are familiar with your background, yeah. football. Yeah. Yeah. Did that help out? It helped out. And it was kind of that feeling of belonging kind of for the first time. Uh, as in the book, my seventh grade year, I was, I was garbage at it. It was my first time playing. <laughs> but eighth grade, it started to click. And I know it was we played Georgetown Benold High School at Georgetown High, at Georgetown, um, High School Stadium, Georgetown Benold Middle School. And that was when my first time I played running back. Uh, it started the whole game, and it just started to click. So, but it was like the gift and the curse, right? Because you're really supposed to find happiness within yourself. And it was kind of like the setup to the fall that would ultimately end up happening because I put my love and my trust in the sport more so than I put love and trust in the Tyler. Mm. So the, 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 the happiness, the joy, I placed it in the hundred plus yards, the touchdowns, uh, MVP, the, the the stars on the back of the helmet, I placed it in all of those things instead of inwardly looking at what makes you happy with who you are in the mirror, Tyler. Mm. So I skipped that whole entire process of self, and I outwardly put those things into the sport, which is what I look for it to define me as, and that was wrong, you know? It Maybe, but that's also not uncommon okay. for kids that age to – place too much value in the superficial like I myself uh, growing up under very different circumstances like I think back now about some of the value that I placed on things I'm like this is ridiculous this is so trivial (laughs) yet it mattered so much to you whether it was a pair of shoes or you know a a pair of jeans from Abercrombie and Fitch or something else that is completely ridiculous like that at least for you with the football thing and the successes that you had on the field it helped you to maybe understand the value of those around you because there is a, uh, there's obviously uh, teamwork at play and getting that camaraderie with other people and, and helping you to uh, maybe understand that there is a place for you. That's Even if you true. do kind of feel like you're, you're caught in the middle between these two different worlds, that there is a place for you in this world too. That's good, man. And, I, and you know what? I didn't think of it like that, you know, uh, I'm because I'm very hard on myself. Yeah. And probably too. And, and, and your own your own worst critic. Yeah, by by far. I, I can't stand the way I stand on radio. It's gonna be hard <laughs> for me to listen to this. I mean, I, I it's hard for me to hear myself as a speaker and all that stuff. But that's that's perspective and insight. And I tell you what, that what you just said helps me with my own children and mm. getting into a mindset of what could potentially be for them. Oh, it's so, so hard. It's I'm so hard. With, said that. It's so hard with the 7-year-old and the things that she cares about and the things that she gets upset about. I'm like it's just a strawberry. But like you said to you. Exactly. To you at that time, like you just said, that that strawberry, man. I can't minimize her feelings. If I'm doing that, I'm doing much more long-term damage versus letting her have her moment with her strawberry. Say that. That's why I said, man, that that was good insight. So what you just said, um that just that just blessed my spirit. I needed to hear that, you know. So I thank you for that. Uh, but happy to help. You've yeah, done man. plenty of that with That's me over the insight, years. So good. the the football thing really does take off with uh, for you. Mm-hmm. Eighth grade, 
you are a star on the freshman team that next year, and if I'm not mistaken, you are a part of the varsity team your sophomore year Absolutely. too, correct? And uh, your your stock just continues to rise to where you are literally ranked as one of the best running back recruits in the state of Texas going into your junior year for your class, only behind a guy named Adrian Peterson. But then something happened in the middle of your junior year that really changed the trajectory of everything. Yeah, what was man. it? And that was uh that was you know, it was it was during the basketball season for us, so off season, right? So you so got between the t- junior and senior yeah, year. In junior se- in junior year in the spring for spring semester. And it's you know, you're you're in off season. There's no football, you know, it's deciding what camps you're gonna go to, it's what campuses are you gonna be visiting, all this other stuff, right? And you're getting scholarship offers and I end up just having this mindset of just feeling like you are like you got it made I, like resting on your laurels but like actually I was it's hard man I don't even want to call it resting it was kind of like doggone it it had been so difficult for me that by this time Trey like everything was so hard I finally felt like I was getting a piece of a peace of mind without going through hell I felt like I was I was like happy kind of you know, you were on a mountaintop. Yeah, and and so and so with that, um, you know, by that time in my life, alcohol had always had always been there. I never liked the taste of it. I just liked the feeling that you received from it. And for me, it was a level of escape. And I made a bad decision to get drunk before high school basketball game. Basketball game where Westlake was playing Austin High, and I showed up there and I was drunk at Austin High High School and. Police officers that smelt alcohol in my breath. They, uh, in front of a sold-out crowd in the gymnasium. The, I'll never forget the police officer and uh, principal. I think his name was uh, Dr. Alan Veach. They they came to where I was sitting in the top row. They pointed from the floor. They pulled me out of the stands, and it's like when the police officer pointed at me, um, and I, and he couldn't make the mistake of pointing anybody else. He knew I knew I was getting pointed at, and it's like when he pointed, it's like my whole heart just left my body. It was like, you know that what's about to happen is not going to be good. And I was so I was also so arrogant at the time. The police officer asked me, Trey, he was like, have you been drinking? And I said, no, I haven't been drinking. And I blew in his face. Oh, no. I blew in his Mm. face. And I was like, see, I have been drinking. And it was just bad. But, you know, that's, you know, you're a minor. You consume alcohol, and then you were drunk on a school campus. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be any worse. And um, that's the event that it changed my recruiting. It changed my high school. Uh, (laughs) You got sent to an alternative school for the rest of the (laughs) semester. The rest of the semester, I got sent to the alternative because of the three reasons. I mean, I had to be be punished, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, What was so bad about that night is – you know, I got out of the police officers tried to help me. Uh, one of my teammates picked me up, took me out, and I ended up going to drink more. So mm-hmm. it didn't even hit me what I had just done. And then when I showed up at class on Monday, that's when I got the quote-unquote sentence and what my rest of my junior year was going to look like. I would not be a part of the, the student body. I got to get sent to an alternative <laughs> alternative uh uh, 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 system. I gotta get sent to the alternative education system. So, how did your mom react <laughs> to that news? I'm 35 years old. I've still never seen my mom weep or cry the way that she's done. <laughs> my mother has lost her mother and father. Mm. 
I've seen a lot of different death. I've seen um, my mom go through tragic events in her life prior to that and post. Mm -hmm. And even in the passing of her mother and her father, I regressed back and I said, surely she's going to cry the same way she did when I was 16. Or when big events happen, I say, um, surely she's going to, because I said, like, I want something else to be more tragic than what I did. Mm -hmm. And my, I've never seen, nothing has happened. My mom's been through aneurysm surgeries. I, oh nothing has happened that has made her weep as much as she has from that 16-year-old conversation. Because she realized how cataclysmic that was going to be for your life? I think it's that. I think it's also, for me, and I stated it, you know, understand the backdrop of my family. My mom and my dad are first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. My mom and my dad grew up from very humble beginnings. So to work so incredibly hard and all you want to do is give your children a better opportunity than what you had growing up mm -hmm. and to know that, you know, you're doing these things and your son stumbles in a way that you all never did. Um, I know that that hurt her tremendously. And I was the baby, so um, my brother... It, you know, my brother never did anything. Like, never got in trouble with the police. My my dad never got, my mama never got in trouble with the police. I did, you know, and that crushed, that crushed her from a parent's perspective. And then, you know, your son has to go through and deal with these, is going to deal with these consequences that you can't save him from. You know, I think a lot of that just hit her at that moment like a whirlwind, you know. Your dad's response was to ask a request out of you. What was the request? I had to call every single Division I college coach who had recruited me, whether they offered a scholarship or not. Which had been a bunch a by bunch this point with you being the number two running back yes, in the state. a bunch of schools. And, and I had to call each coach and tell each coach what I had done. I had to tell them not to come by the school to see me in the spring because, you know, off-season coaches are making their rounds to come to your schools in the springs and and having the visits and all that stuff. And my dad told me to call every single college coach and tell them what I had gotten in trouble for, that I was in the alternative system, that I would finish out the remainder of my junior year there, and um, just not to come by and see me because I wouldn't – I'm not available. You know, that <laughs> – um, when I got my first scholarship, Trey, I told my, my mom and my dad, like, you'll never have to worry about paying for college for me ever again. And I, I really want that to sink for people because being 16 and telling your parents you don't have to worry about paying for college is a big deal. And like, please empathize and understand where young student athletes are coming from, from that. Mm -hmm. Like that is, a, that was one of my highest points being 16 and having those and just being like college is paid for you don't have to worry about that my brother was partial because it's spring sports when he went to university of south carolina it wasn't full scholarship right mm -hmm. they are elite they were elite track and field program at that time dominating in the sec and for my brother to get a partial that was huge but i was coming from the perspective of tyler baby boy the 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 runt of the family athletics didn't come naturally to finally being 16 and now i I got my scholarship paid for. You don't have to worry about spending a dime for me, mom and dad. Like that meant the world to me. And now 
Now I'm telling these people, don't come see me. And and I'll never forget, and I think it was Georgia Tech. I, I, matter of fact, I know it was Georgia Tech because I had to go look up in the college directory because the, the, the recruiting letter that I had from them, the football office number was cut off. It had ripped in the mail. So I couldn't call, and I had to go get the directory. I had to look up Georgia Tech offices. I had to look up the football office, and I had to call, and I had to leave a message for the running backs coach at Georgia Tech University and tell him the same thing. And I remember at the end of it, I was literally like, what the hell am I doing? Like, what <laughs> What am I doing? I, like, I was like literally that moment of like, this is crazy. And I said that, and I just hung up the phone because I knew that it was on the message that I was leaving for him. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever called back. Not, also, one, not one. I also used to, so I used to look at it like from this perspective. I used to look at it like they didn't want me, but at the same time, getting older and understanding that at those at their you know they, I know they have restrictions at different times in spring as to how many calls that they can make, and I think a lot of times while I was making that call, because this is wasn't all at one time, I had to butter up and make calls all throughout my time at at alternative system. So it like it wasn't just one day of making calls because the one day of making calls, if I could get to through two or three before breaking down. So I couldn't make them all at one time. So I, you know, I think it was a combination of of that too. You just okay. weren't allotted if they didn't have that phone uh, to get that phone call because of regulation. You know, so it it was a multitude of things. But you also know you're not the only running back getting recruited, Trey. Yeah. And if I'm investing money in you as a student athlete, like what what is it? Tuition for four years. I mean, you getting free food, your gear. You are an investment. And there are other running backs getting recruited. So if you got character flaws and character issues, heck, I can find somebody to replace you on the on the board. It's very cutthroat business. It's business. It is. It's welcome to business. I don't fault any of the coaches for it at all, man. It's Yeah, I I don't I don't either, but by the same token, it was an alcohol related offense and are we acting like high school kids don't drink and don't do stupid things when they're drunk either. Sure. It's um, I admire your dad for, for re- requesting that out of you because that was a character-building moment for you, as much as it may have added to the hardship at the time. I think that ultimately, long-term, I, I think it, it made you a better person. Do you agree with that? By far. And it will always be the thing that I am most grateful for. It was the most hurtful thing. But as far as gr- like those things that I learned at that time, I learned literally... How bad do you want a dream? Because you've literally taken a, gin, a, a samurai sword and knifed that dream up to pieces, literally. Now, can you pick them back up? Work ethic. All those things were derived from that moment. So you play your senior year. You're a really good player your mm-hmm. senior year. You get some flirtations with regards to scholarships, mm-hmm. but ultimately you end up at Pasadena City College mm-hmm. in California. How did that happen? So it's like March, I think. Signing day is passed. So I didn't sign. And so I had to go through that wave of the recruiting services, the Austin American Statesmen, everybody. Why didn't you sign? Right? Because it just, it didn't, it, I didn't have press conference sign. I had none of that. And I had nowhere to go to school. Um, Pasadena City College, by that time, people understand the waves, right? 
your D1s come through, they wipe out. Then after the D1 signing day, then your other, uh, you know, D1, double, uh, D1, D2, D3s, JCs, everybody else is coming through to kind of filter and see what's out there that mm-hmm. didn't get offered. So a coach from Pasadena City College came in who was a native of, of Texas. So he was accustomed to coming to the South and getting kids, and he stopped at Westlake High School. Uh, we went to the semifinals that year, so we had a we had a good year. And uh, my coach, uh, Derek Long, sent me uh, passed me a business card in the hallway, and it had Pasadena City College on it. And I read up about PCC. First name I read up about was was Jackie Robinson, and I had no idea that he had went there. I knew he went to UCLA, but I didn't know he went there. And it was just like I was getting excited just learning about all the different people who came through Pasadena City College. And I had always wanted to go to California. Um, there was just something about my spirit going to Cal. I think it was just about getting as far away as I possibly could from here. Mm-hmm. And I know that in California there's just so much other stuff going on besides football. And so it hit me. It was like, okay, you go to PCC, you transfer to a junior. If you go to California, it's easier for – you to get recruited by California schools mm-hmm. being in their JC versus going to a Texas JC. Nobody's going to fly unless you are crushing it, right? And so um, the the mold of the plan started circling through my mind, and that's when I went home to my mother and I said, we got to go to PCC. After my research, I said, we got to go to PCC and go see it. And sh- we flew to Pasadena as soon as I got off in Bob Hope Airport in Burbank, California, and I saw the palm trees and I just felt the air. I saw In-N-Out Burger, Trey. I, you got to understand, we're in Texas. We don't have In-N-Out at that time. <laughs> That's so right. I had always heard about In-N-Out Burger. So to go there and to see these things, um, California was just a beautiful vibe for me. And I knew when I got to PCC that this was the route I was supposed to go. Mm. That's how I ended up at PCC. And I, I'll never forget going through the Hall of Champions and seeing Jackie Robinson's bust. And I just sat there looking at his bust and, like, it knowing the level of sacrifice for somebody who wanted this dream, I had to go to PCC. Not to diminish your time at PCC, <laughs> but we're going to fast forward a little mm-hmm. bit because that does eventually turn into a scholarship offer from mm-hmm. San Diego State University. Yeah. <laughs> Putting aside your marriage and the birth of your children, that had to have been one of the most exhilarating moments of your life. Up to that point, that was the, that was, that was the moment. And, you know, understand, like, when I was at PCC, I remember Eric Bieniemy, who's the offensive coordinator at the Kansas City Chiefs, was a running back coach at UCLA at that time. Mm. And so when I was there, Eric had come to see me lift weights at UCLA, and I was like, oh, my gosh, because he couldn't believe that I was there. A lot of people didn't know I was at PCC because I got hurt there. And so I was like, oh, it's starting to uptick, uptick, uptick. But then I never heard anymore from UCLA, and San Diego State came, and they swooped me. Um I cried. Uh, I understand that when, when you tell people you're going to a junior college, there's no scholarships, you're leaving Texas, going to California. I don't even know the margins, but there's a slim margin of you making it from a D1, I mean from a JC to a D1. It's not you pay your own way in California. Um, it's it's tough. Like junior colleges in, in Texas have scholarships. They don't have that in California. <laughs> you know, Um so to go through that tough surrounding and to finally make it out, and the way that I made it out, I got my scholarship because a person had gotten in trouble like I did for substance abuse. 
So his scholarship vacated, and that's how I got mine. So just the way that it ended up happening, um, it made me cry. I bawled. But again, I made the call to my mom, and I told her, see, mom, you're not going to have to pay for my education because I got a scholarship. And that was like me giving it the gift back. I had learned from my mistakes. I took a chance and bet on myself, and it worked out. How'd she react to that phone call? <laughs> she thought I was joking. <laughs> because you have, I didn't play. Remember, I did, only played six quarters of junior college football. Right. So Ankle injury, I think. Uh, shoulder, a shoulder injury. Okay. So she thought it was a joke. Okay. Because it was just unheard of. And, and I, you know, so, again, I read. Then I read the scholarship letter, you know, the official letter, you know, of offering. And she believed it. And then I said, Mom, camp is... Less than a month away, we gotta hurry up because I gotta I gotta make it there in time for camp. So it was very rapid fire. Get out of your apartment, get everything together, drive down, move in, and and transition in life. It was it was crazy. It was a whirlwind. So you spent most of your time at San Diego State as a fullback. Mm-hmm. Yes. Dabbled a little bit in the running back position, depending on injury issues right. at that position. Right. But you really made a name for yourself on special teams, which is uh, sort of the uh, the unsung hero of a football team, some uh, a group or an individual who's really good on special teams. Yeah. Did you have to swallow your pride at all to do that? Yes. I mean, because it is not as glamorous as obviously the uh, the <laughs> psychological riches that you had acquired as a running back throughout your career. Dude, when the coaches tell you you're a headhunter and you're like, what's a headhunter, coach? And they're like, you see that wedge there? You're going to split those two offensive linemen at the bottom who are 340-plus or 300-plus pounds, <laughs> and your job is not to make the tackle. Your job is to stick your helmet in between the shoulders of those two individuals so somebody else can rally, and, and you're going to do that for 12 games. It was like, bro, I never played special teams in, in, in high school. That was like the time you got to rest in practice. <laughs> like, so all yeah. of that, learning curve, and then – being told you're getting moved to fullback and knowing in your heart, like, you know you can play running back, but it's just not your time. Um, man, it just – I had a turf toe injury that first spring, my first spring, and it just messed up. I had ankle injury my first time on camp. It, it was just like everything just kept happening in a bad way, and it my life was forced to be a part of special teams. But once I got out there, and I'll never forget, um, like, making tackles – I play offense all my life. I ain't made tackles since eighth grade. <laughs> so it was just like when you're a football player, special teams taught me if you're really about football, if you're really about team, and if you're really about sacrifice, and if you really care about what you sign on the dotted line for, then you'll be you'll be appreciative of special teams. And so I learned that I really did love the game of football from playing special teams. Yeah. And any hardships that you had felt on the football field pale in comparison to what happened on December 2nd, 2007? Mm-hmm. What yeah. exactly happened that day? We had, we had played BYU the game before. Uh, woke up the next morning, and I fell out of bed. I had no feeling on the right side of my body. I couldn't speak. I couldn't talk, and I couldn't get to my feet. Um, my body's like an alarm clock, so it always wakes up at, at 4-something, between 4.30 and 5 a.m., Every morning. And for me, it was a routine wake-up. But to wake up and fall flat on the floor, I tell everybody, you take for granted when you wake up, you're just going to be able to walk. That, like, 
that day changed my life. From every morning, I get nervous about can I walk for the rest of my life because I know what it's like to wake up, think you're going to go over to the bathroom and fall flat on your face. And so um, paralysis down the right side of my body, couldn't feel anything. I had a neck-jerking twitch. Um, like I always tell people, Abdul Rauf, who used to play for the Denver Nuggets. Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, mm-hmm. yeah. Who had a, Chris who had, Jackson. Yeah, had a, had, a, had a twitch when he would play basketball. It's like I had that, but it was on constant. And I, without warning, I had no idea what was going on. So it was just a scary time. And, and uh, you know, you go to the athletic center. They test you for concussions. I don't have concussions. I passed all those tests. But equilibrium tests, I failed. And then to not get the answer from the team doctor was the most alarming thing for me. Because normally, as an athlete, you see trainer, then doctor, you get answer. Good or bad, that's usually the line of defense. And I didn't get that. Not just that, but they ask you to go to a neurologist in law. In La- yeah, and so I, I now I'm out of San Diego State's hands, and now it's back on me, and I have to drive with my left foot, my left arm to go to La Jolla, California. So I'm all alone <laughs> in a neurologist's office because there's something wrong with my brain. So, it, you know, I'm 21 years old, away from family. I'm by myself. We're talking about my brain, and... I, it, the the doctor doesn't know what it is. That was the scary thing. Like I, something's wrong, and that's you know that led to my diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. That's what led to it. What was the initial treatment like for you in in trying to overcome the paralysis that you continue to deal with after you visited both the team doctor and then the neurologist, uh, however many miles away? So not uh, I didn't take the I didn't take it seriously. I. Like and I and I tell people, please understand the mindset of an athlete. We are, where you get you have a problem, you you know that there's an issue, there's an injury. You do what the doctor says, you move on. In my case, my my move on was finals. I'm a business management major, so all of my finals are not multiple choice. They are written essay finals for HR, for marketing, um, for my leadership courses. These are written essay finals. So for me, my the doctors had to give me steroids um, to try to jumpstart my immune system and jumpstart my body to try to get things moving. Which you were reluctant to use at first because you're like, I don't want this to compromise oh, my standing as a football player. Yeah, and to somebody in the medical field, you might laugh, but to an athlete, we yeah. use steroids at that time, and my whole the mindset is my athletic scholarship. Because mm-hmm. I worked so hard to get to SDSU. I'm about to graduate. Please don't take this away from me. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to get something taken away from you in the blink of an eye, dating back to being 16 with alcohol problems. So I know the world and life can take things away from you very fast. And this was also around the same time that MLB was going through exactly, their steroids game. Exactly. Too. So understand what I see on TV on Sports Center. Mm-hmm. Understand what I see uh, with baseball, and that's exactly where my mind went. And and I and so. Um, when I when they told me it's not like that, yeah. we have to try something because you can't move your limbs. And and I told her, I said we have to do something because I have I have SA finals because this is this is December. We're getting ready to get out of school in a, in a matter of weeks, you know, less than that. And so they they give me the steroids. There's um actually I give myself the steroids. They send me home. I have the at home nurse who comes and does my IV. So she injects my IV, and then she shows me how I put these steroid balls of fluids into the IV and how I'm supposed to clean my IV, clean out everything, and flush them. 
Um, so she does everything like that, and she's like, okay, see you later. And you do these are the times you do this stuff. And and so to my shock and surprise, it works. It works enough to where I can at least move my hand. Um, but my, one of my finals, I don't know how I even passed it. I think the teacher had sympathy because I looked at it, and I was like, there's no way in hell she's going to be able to read this. Like I, But it was the process was me holding my right arm and – and maneuvering, holding my right arm with my left and just maneuvering the letters. And I was the last to finish every single one of my finals. I used all the time. So I was last. But if you saw me, I know kids would look at me crazy because when I walked into the, the rooms, it would be me dragging my feet. Like, so picture somebody dra- walking across campus, like literally dragging their foot. My right arm and shoulder just dangle. And then when I move, it's like literally move, picking up your arm, moving your arm, putting your pencil in your hand and, and just moving and so you could see my steroid ball out of my pocket because it would connect from my pocket and you would see the um uh uh the the, the little tube hanging from from my pocket down to my backpack. So you right. could you people were looking like something's really wrong, but I never said anything to anybody. Mm. But I passed I passed my finals, which was all I wanted. And mm. I never did tell coaches. And I was time. about to say, and throughout the course of these couple of weeks, you kept making sure that you could still play football mm-hmm. even with this mm-hmm. debilitating condition. Mm-hmm. And you actually did. You you played your senior season. So it's a product of learning how to mask things at a very, very early age in my life. Learning how to hide, learning how to conceal, learning how to not – I felt like always projecting problems was, like, burdensome mm. to other people. I'm a part of a team. We do what we have to do so that we can go play and battle an opposing team on Saturday. We are sons of Montezuma. We are warriors. We are Aztec warriors. So for me, I embodied everything that my school stood for. Mm. Sons of Montezuma. I know the fight song. And so for me, I want to do battle with my brothers regardless of which. And there are no excuses for that. And I don't need you to feel sorry for me. I don't want you to take reps away from me in practice because you think. I don't want you to pull me from special teams because there's a possibility. So I didn't want to have those conversations with you. I went to the training room to let them see me inject myself so they could see me inject my medications after the steroids to see that I know how to clean my needles. I know how to clean my spots when I inject myself in my abs, my hips, my butt, my my chest so that I could get your clearance to know that I'm okay because if I can tell you I'm okay, you're not going to run and go tell my coaches everything. That was my mindset. So, And they kept that secret for you. So if they told, they never told me. Mm. And I never had a one-on-one with my conversation with my coaches. I'll never forget being in Notre Dame. My coaches, my senior year, they, they saw me running slower than everybody else as a headhunter on special teams. And they asked me, is something wrong, Tyler? And I told my running back coach and our head coach, Chuck Long, nothing is wrong. I will pick it up, and you won't see this on film ever again. It was an opportunity for me to tell, but I didn't tell. And you even pursued pro aspirations mm-hmm. also. You went through pro day. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, that doesn't work out mm-hmm. because you are mostly a special teams guy. And the bottom line is, even at the NFL level, as a special teams guy, you still need to be able to get on the field. 100%. You got to have film. You, you have to be able to at least be able to participate at whatever that position is that you're listed at. You can't just be a special teams guy in most instances. Absolutely. And, and, I knew, and, and for me... Life was always so hard it, to, to, to reach the goal. I understood by that time 
it's always going to be harder for you, Tyler. Right. You always have to go the journeyman's journey. And so for me, NFL Europe was still happening. Arena ball was still there. So for me, it was like, you know you're not going to get drafted. My dad made me have that wake-up call. It was a good wake-up call, an understanding for me. And I was like, it's always been difficult. It's always been junior college. It's always been alternative school. It's always been special teams. And so I was down for that journey. I was okay with all of that and having years of working yourself up. You know, um, I was I was about that life. So for me, it was just a joy to participate. I got that stuff out there. And um, multiple sclerosis came, comes and hits again. And this time it's it's wheelchair. It's drop foot. It's the worst MS episode I had ever had. And what I did. Was this the second time? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this. So what I didn't tell in the book that I'll tell people now is I had an <laughs> I had an episode. I had a relapse during training uh, before pro day mm. and I lost the functioning. The steroids did the process. I wasn't worried about it. Um, but I had a relapse during training, largely because I was probably pushing my body too much. And then after pro day, body just gave out completely. And that relapse, I didn't recover from. That one I didn't recover from. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to recover from that? <sighs> Months. Um, Were you back here in Texas by yeah, that point? Yeah, by that time. So I okay. came back to Texas in a wheelchair. Uh, my mama had to come get me. My mom had to... I stayed in the hospital for about four days and, and hearing the words from the neurologist, like there's nothing else that we can do. The disease just has to take its course. Maybe feelings will come back. Maybe they won't. Um, that time. So that's when the erectile dysfunction issues start happening. That's when you have the talk talks with the doctor about the severity of MS and how sometimes people spend lives underneath their parents care. Um, at my position, I'm 21, so they were kind of preparing me that you, you know, you may not find love. You know, all you were having those conversations, difficulty with 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 maybe not having children. You know, all of those conversations, and I'm I'm having that by myself because it's still in the hospital room. I didn't call, <laughs> didn't call teammates. I called I called like three people, um, and I just, you know, I just really struggled with opening up to give people my full me. And so I'm in the hospital bed alone for the most part because my mom, no, my family's not in La Jolla, Cal. I have no family out there. So, um, you know, definitely some tough times and transitioning back in a wheelchair and physical therapy and speech therapy and just, uh, just grinding times of slow, <laughs> slowly, like a turtle getting better like moving your fingers or wiggling your toes. Um, those were my days coming back here. Yeah. And like much as the case in life, the greatest hardships can turn into the greatest opportunities. Yeah, man. So how did you become an MS ambassador? They, and somebody who is so well-respected and so highly sought after yeah. as a public speaker. That's crazy. Um so the National MS Society, they found me. I didn't know what I was doing was a big deal. I was just trying to play football with my teammates on our scholarship so that the next kid behind me would have a scholarship open for them after I graduated. Mm-hmm. I didn't know much about MS. Like, I didn't know it was a big deal to be playing football with MS. To me, it wasn't. It just sucked being slower than normal or having slower reflexes. Like, it, that's all I kept thinking about was 
wish college would have went this way without or what would have college been like without MS, right? And so I didn't know that what I was doing was giving hope to a community of multiple sclerosis patients. So they found me, and I think, I, I still don't know how they found me. I think, um, <laughs> I don't know how they found me. <laughs> hmm. I don't know how they found me, but they hmm. asked, and I did an interview with them, and that opened the door for me being on their conference, uh, their national conference. And 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 please understand, people, like, I'm very introverted, extrovert. Like I said, I talk because I have to talk. I'm Earl Campbell's son, so I grew up in a world of having to talk even when you don't feel like you but have you to But you also need that downtime because I, I consider myself very similar. Exactly. And, 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 and so for me, taking that speech class my senior year was something I had dreaded all through college. I mean, when I knew I was a business management major and I knew what was required was a speech course, I waited till my senior year to take that speech course because I dreaded it for so long. But when I got in there, it was like I discovered a new level of Tyler that was never, ever there before. And so when the MS Society had called, I was cool with doing a 25-minute speech, 30-minute speech. That was fine by me. And they and, and so that's really the, what set the trajectory. They found me. We did an interview. I did their conference. And a room full of 700 close to if it wasn't a thousand, it was close. I know it was over 700 amount of people. And I felt like I belonged. I felt like I belonged in a way that football never presented for me. Mm. And so that was a new feeling. And so I knew with this thing of speaking, that's how my dad felt when he hit the field. I never had that level of comfort. I was always antsy. I was always nervous before games, I always tight. I played football very tight and I always wanted to know what it would be like to play loose. Why well, couldn't I be loose like my teammates over here listening to music, relaxing? I am loose when I am speaking. Mm. And so when I got on stage, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what that feels like. This is what Pop feels like when he knows that he's about to go in and get 200 today. I know that when I go on stage, I am about to crush it. When you give me a microphone, it's over. I never had that confidence playing ball. So it was like... That was happening, and then so life gifted me back a purpose of who and what I was supposed to be, especially for the MS community. And interestingly, you found out that uh, you may have gotten a little bit of that comfortability as a public speaker from your dad, too. I never knew my dad was a speech major. Hmm. I never knew my dad, Moody School of Communications at the University of Texas. I never knew that. Uh, Roosevelt Leakes was the one who tricked my dad into getting involved with communications and majoring over there because <laughs> he wanted to set my dad up for like, you're going to have to give speeches. Yeah. And my dad walked in the speech class. <laughs> he was just like, Rosie, you got me. And so, <laughs> but also for him, yo, he learned how to prepare and make speeches. And he was good at and it. And he was very, very good at it. And my dad has anxiety problems. So people see the dark Ray-Ban sunglasses, they think he just like, my dad has uh Severe, you know, anxiety problems, especially amongst big crowds of people, which is mm. why he and Ricky uh, yep. get along and had gotten along so well when Ricky was here because my dad understood those types of anxieties. But you have no choice with a microphone or with the TV or with you're flushed into that light. And so when people see my dad, understand that that's why he wears. And so um, to see him as a speech major. It made me feel good. It's like I know dad battles this level of anxiety and he still can do 
and give speeches and I've seen my dad do graduations. I've seen and it's just like, whoa. And that's the part of my dad that nobody, you know, ever talks about. But I learned that that's really what I took away from my father. Mm. I had always thought it was some form of football ability. Not even though I can't even carry his jock strap, but it's some I always thought it was some form of football ability. But really, it was the essence of communication and the love for storytelling and words mm. that I took away from him. For those who are unfamiliar with the reference, he was Ricky Williams is who uh, Tyler yes. is referring to right good, there. Uh, Tyler, speaking of stories, what's the key to a good story? I think the key of the so I feel like you have to be you have to understand that you're bringing people into your world through your eyes and you've got to lay down the setting. And I feel like your octaves are everything because you have to make people feel where you're coming from. So what's the air like? What is the scenery like? What is the trajectory of the environment of what you're telling the story for? And how how passionate can you be? Um, I looked at I look at actors as some of the most amazing people. I look at artists as some of the most amazing people because they can help you feel a scene bigger than you can ever imagine by the way that they interpret, by the way that they move. They can take you there and then they turn it off and go back to the regular prayer. To me, that's like the most amazing, that's the most amazing quality. I, I don't know how they do it. I think Matthew McConaughey is brilliant. I think Denzel Washington is amazing. Got a greater level for love of Al Pacino, all these amazing mm-hmm. people. Uh, John Wayne, uh, like just people. Um, because they can, they can really allow you to fall in love with a character that they are just portraying, that they are inviting you into their story. So for me, I'm on the microphone. You can't understand where I'm coming from. You haven't been, but I can take you there. And it's a joy to be able to take you there. My hurts, my pains, my sorrows, to be able to get there and make you feel those emotions. And so I feel like it's, can you get into character Mm. to tell the story? Even if it's of a childhood, even if it's of a story of somebody else, can you get into character to relay it for those people who are driving in their cars, can't feel it? People who are listening through audible track can't see it. Um, that's your job. If I can take you there, then you're going to walk out of whatever it is we're talking about with a greater level of feeling, and you're going to tell somebody else. But you won't if you can't feel me through the microphone. So you got to be able to, you got to be able to just fall into character, the emotions, painting the scenery, giving the bullet points, and also the principle. What is the guiding principle that you want people to take away from the story you're giving to? So it's punchline, 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 principle. Can you make them leave with a principle of the story that you're telling? And if I can get you to take away the principle from the story, then I just gave you everything so you can tell it to somebody else. Great answer. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. What does your mom mean to you? My mother, uh, she means the world. You know, I, I know it's not easy being married to somebody who's in the limelight. I know it's not easy having a child who you instilled all these values into and it and have them like fail before you. You know, um, she didn't give up on me. You know, she took care of me. As a former nurse, she took care of me with my MS. She fed me. She she bathed me. She had she had to help me to the restroom. You know, um, that's an added level of strength. And she didn't give up on me based off of what I did when I was 16. 
And she could have turned her back and had every right to turn her back on me at that time. And she never did. And so for that, I'm, I'm forever grateful for her. What about your dad? That's my superhero. That's my Superman. And it, it pains me that um, my Superman has a kryptonite, which is five back surgeries, congenital spinal stenosis. So I've seen, I've seen my Superman get raptured um, by kryptonite over and over again. But my Superman is still standing. And I wish that the world would focus more on those facts about him versus how Earl Campbell looks like now. And uh, he's the greatest grandfather. He's a tremendous father. When you read that book, you understand that every time I've needed Earl Campbell in my life, he's always been there regardless of his physical ailments. Mm. So that's that's my Superman. What about your wife, Shana, a.k.a. the former Ms. Watson. Oh, man. Yeah, Ms. Watson is, she is, she's grace. She is non-judgmental. She meets me wherever I am and has always been there at the forefront. She serves for anybody and everybody. People think I have a heart of humility. I tell people my wife has like an amazing heart of gold. And I I am because of who she is. You know, my, my wife deals with a lot behind the scenes of this disease that people never, ever get to see. You know, and, and you'll know this, like, to be able to find somebody that you spend the rest of your life with, that doesn't happen for everybody. To find someone who loves you back the way that you love them that doesn't happen for everybody. So when people say I'm not where I want to be or I don't have what I want to have, but I see them or their kids on the desk, say, man, you have everything because you found somebody in this world who loves you. It's like how many ever many billion people on this planet and you found somebody to love you like you're winning. Um, so no matter what MS cuts from me, no matter what it takes away from me with Miss Watson uh, or now Miss Campbell took me back to college, <laughs> Mrs. Campbell. Um, I'm winning, and with her, she she keeps me lifted. She keeps me grounded. She pushes me, and doesn't allow me to feel sorry for myself, which is very important. And again, through her, uh, I take my life through another level. People understand she's she was the best athlete out of both of us. Any, anyway, I mean my my wife was. Dead. Dang near uh, the the best the best triple jumper in the country as a freshman in her as in out of, as, out of freshman at San Diego State so um, I look at her as that elite person in our household from an athlete standpoint you know so um, man she's great she's love and we walk faithfully together. Last question, Tyler. You already starting to concoct book two? Yeah, that's and that's what I think I told you, Trey. Like. Um, I think I want I want a more of an I want like a help book for multiple sclerosis patients. Mm-hmm. I haven't wrapped around what that's going to look like. Um, as you know, this you know I finished my book and I was like, dang, I left out so much in my book. And I learned that through a lot of authors that that's that's generally a, a consensus. Yeah. But that doesn't it just means you got in there what you're supposed to get in there and now you have to keep writing books. Yeah. So that's 
that's kind of the way I feel. I had waited so long to write a book and have been so nervous about it, so apprehensive about it, and so worrisome about it that my advice to people is, man, just write it. Get it out there. The first one seems like it's going to be the most difficult out of any of them to read or to write because now I'm ready to flow. I kind of have my outlines. I know how I want to do it. I know I'm like the chapters. I'm, I want it to be something multiple sclerosis self-help type whether we're talking diet whether we're talking i need to do something to kind of dive in more in depth to the ms community that obviously it may not have a big tie-in for sports community like this book did um i've got to do more of something ms wise on the next one i don't know how but that's probably what it'll, it'll be no doubt it'll be a great finished product he is tyler campbell a husband father ms ambassador a public speaker who does a great job motivating folks, a radio host, Real Life, Real Talk, heard every Saturdays on 104.9 The Horn, and now a published author. The book is called The Ball Came Out. Get it now wherever books are sold, and definitely consider checking out the Audible version. It is going to be out by the time this episode releases. Tyler, thank you so much for the time today, my friend. Hey, thank you, brother. It's a joy.